Are you excited about the word of God today? Like, how many came? Like, I came to get a word. I need a word from God. You didn't come today. This wasn't a religious exercise. It wasn't just you escaping the Alcatraz of your house to try to, to get out. But you're like, I need God to speak to me today. Man, I'm with you. Uh, I'm glad to be out. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad today um, just to dive into a new series that I'm kicking off today. And, uh, and so right now, if you're watching online, you know the drill. Make sure you like and comment and share the stream wherever you're at because someone may need some hope. They may need salvation, redemption, restoration. And, and listen, when you turn the stream on in your house, you're not turning on a stream. Well, you are. You're turning on the streams that make glad the city of God. That's what you're turning. You're turning on water from heaven, the rivers of life. So it's not just a digital stream, but it's a spiritual stream that you're turning on. So go ahead and click and like and comment and share um, and help some other people find the stream that makes glad the city of God this morning. Did y'all like how I totally turned a technological wonder into something? Did you like that? Did you like something spiritual? And so anyways, yeah, turn on the stream. Let the stream of God run through your house today. And so uh, anyways, man, yeah, we're going to dive into this word. Thank you, Josh. You get... <laughs> um, all right starting a new series today and and I called this series without fail without fail and if you have uh, been around me or hung out at pathway um, I've said this before but just so you know sometimes people say well where do you get these series well I don't I don't look up series that other people have done, although I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. I certainly listen to other pastors and, and people like that. I, you know, I got to go to church too. And so there's a few pastors that I listen to for my own church. Um, and so, you know, but I don't get them from other people necessarily. I, I get them from a burden. I, because, I'm a, because I'm a preacher, I'm a little bit old school Pentecostal. If that scares you, don't run out. No one's going to shicky shibobo you. Okay, you are safe. Um, <laughs> And so, like, just breathe. <laughs> I just lost four people from the live stream right there. I can't get you. You're in your home. You're totally safe. Um, but but, um, but I'm, a, I'm more of a preacher. And to preach, you have to have a burden. In other words, there has to be something in me that's stirred up, right? Kind of like Jeremiah. I've got to have a little fire in my bones if I'm going to do service to what God has asked me to do. And so some, you know, some people will take, you know, the book, you know, like a book in the Bible and just go through it. And I want to do that. Like, I always think that's the coolest thing. And I love listening to those series because I love to learn about the Bible and all that. Um, but it's so hard for me to do because I need a burden. And, and when I get a burden, then I have a message and I have a series. And, and, and then I think about all the different episodes in that series, like on Netflix, like where does this need to start and where does this need to finish and what needs to be in the middle? How many has been vegging out on some Netflix during Snowpocalypse 2021, right? The kids and I, we have our series that we watch and we're, this is our new series. Like we've been through a few, but now we're on a new series and like, this is our series and we're going through all the episodes together and and so I think about that and the burden that I had when I came to this and the reason I called it without fail is because I feel like in, in our society, in our culture, in our world, everything feels like it is unstable. Everything feels like shifting sand as the old hymn used to say, right? Everything feels like it is kind of reeling and, and shifting and shaking. And it's like, what, is there something that I can build my life on? Because I can't build my life on government. Hello, I think we've all learned that. Doesn't matter who's in the White House. We can't build our life on that, right? And, and we can't build our life just on conjecture. And I can't build my life on social media followers. And I can't build my life on the next relationship. And I can't build my life on the job that I have today because I it, it could get outsourced tomorrow and I wouldn't have a job anymore. There, there are things. And so what is it? Like I'm sitting here saying, what is it that we can build our lives on and know that it will not fail? And when I came to that, I came to the word of God. The word of God has been given to us so that we can build our life on something that will not fail. And so in 2 Timothy, we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to read two verses. I'll have a lot more scripture. You know me. I'm going to have a lot of scripture. I don't know why, but very early on when I started preaching 
when I was about 18 years old. And there was always something inside of me that said, if I, if I said something, I needed to have a verse to back it up. That, I, that, that from, from a position in God's, God's church, that I was never allowed to say something that was not grounded on his word. That this wasn't a place for me just to express my thoughts or opinions. This was a place to repeat to you the truth of God's word. Um, in fact, I was telling some, some uh, pastors the other day, we were in the conversation, one of them asked a question. And I said, the truth is, because they're saying, when you struggle to get a message, what do you do? And I had a long conversation. But one of the things I said was, I said, I remember my job's not to get a message. It's to repeat one. Because they don't come to hear something I came up with. They come to hear what God wants to say that day. And he already has the message. I just need to repeat it. I don't have to create it. And so, and so that, that is the burden. And I feel this burden from the word of God. And when we say something, we want to back it up with scripture. So we're going to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's last writing, his last epistle. Um, he is writing from Roman imprisonment. Things are going bad. He realizes this is probably going to be the end of his life. He is writing to someone he has trained in ministry, a son in the faith named Timothy. And he right now, Timothy's post is he is overseeing or pastoring a church, the church in Ephesus. And Paul is actually making an appeal for him to come to him. And so Paul is writing, and that's why some of the text in, in 2 Timothy is so it is so rich because Paul, like he realized this may be the end and he is giving his son in the faith just vital, like nuggets and truth and things, you know, he's like, therefore I, I charge you preach the gospel, be instant in season and out season, you know, rebuke, exhort, train. Like he is telling Timothy, like, you have got to carry on this message. You've got to preach it. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, very familiar scripture, but it says, all scripture, Paul says. How much of scripture? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, and when it says man of God, it is not talking about a pastor or just a church leader. You could very easily say the person of God. The, the, the woman of God, you could easily say the people of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture given by inspiration of God. All scripture. I call, I call this message, this first message in without fail, I call this message God's honest truth. God's honest truth. Can we pray? Holy Spirit, come now and illuminate the word of God. Give us insight and understanding. God, we choose right now to open our hearts to your truth. We choose to listen not only with ears of flesh, but with spiritual ears. God, what your Holy Spirit would say to us. So come, speak, transform, change, reveal, uncover, clarify. In Jesus' name, and everybody said. Amen. So kind of like what I was saying, just like a Netflix series, when you kind of get a series idea and you know you're going to have different episodes. So I have a series and then I have these messages. And then you think about where do I need to start and then where do I need to end and what needs to be in the middle. And so that's why a lot of times like the, the message that I started this series on is now like message three in the series because it's a great message and it was the inspiration. But in order to get there, we got to start here and we got to work our way through because what I realized is I grew up and, and really my generation is not so much this way, but I am. But but probably if you're if like you're watching online, you're in the room and you're a boomer. So you're a baby boomer or above then. And, and you're a believer. You accept the authority of God's word because you grew up accepting the authority of God's word. And you said, OK, it's God's word. This is what I've been taught. I don't know about you. I grew up in a thing called kids church, children's church. And so oh, I got some nods. Y'all went to my church. Okay. And we sung a lot of cool songs, most of which were to burn sugar energy off. Like when you get amped up on sugar and you have waffles and cereal and all that and donuts for breakfast, they, they bring you in and say, let's sing Father Abraham had many sons, right? Because yeah, right foot, left foot, right arm, right? Because all they're trying to do is wear you out so they can tell you the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, I got to wear these kids out, right? And, and so, but we sung this song. Help me if you know it. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E, right? Some of y'all went to my church. 
That is awesome. We should talk. We probably know people. <laughs> but I grew up believing the Bible was the word of God because I, I grew up knowing the author. And because I know the author of the book, I accept the book. But, but now in the culture and the age in which we live and with the internet coming online, and now there are all of these people who believe they have discredited the Bible. By the way, the Bible has been scrutinized and dissected, criticized and analyzed as long as it's existed. And still no one has ever disproven it. But now you have Bible Guy 683 and Wonder Girl 567. And they have never been to Bible school. They have never studied Greek lexicons or Hebrew lexicons or anything. But they've got a theory. And because they're on YouTube, we assume it's credible because obviously everything posted on YouTube and Instagram is verified and fact-checked. No one could just go on there and say something they wanted to say. If it's on there, if it's on the internet, it's got to be true. Uh, yeah. Wikipedia had an article about it. Yeah. <laughs> and now we have a generation that because they have been bombarded with this all-out assault on the Word of God, yeah. they're questioning its authority and accuracy. And I understand why. Because in five minutes, you can watch someone totally malign the Bible as though they're actually right. And so where I wanted to start this series, essentially, was this message on God's honest truth. How do we know the Bible is true? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, there's nothing else you should build your life on except the Word. And of course, I can hear somebody say, no, I build my life on the rock that is Jesus. And I would say that's true. But you understand the Bible is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. The Bible and Jesus are the same. I'm not saying you worship it, you got to understand the text. But I'm just saying He is the Word. He is the revelation that's on the pages. And so we build our life. We stand alone. Come on, somebody, on the B-I-B-L-E. But I want to, for, for, for millennials and for, for, for Zers and, and, and all the generations, I'm going to take just a little bit of time and walk you through some things that are a little bit academic, but, but, but are very necessary, I think, to understand the credibility, the accuracy, of scripture. So when we say, is, is the Bible true? Let's talk about some of the other books of faith really quickly, because you have a lot of books of different, we'll call them belief systems, maybe more so than faith. Well, I think it takes faith to believe them. But when you take like the, the book of Buddha, right? And you take the book of Buddha, that's, that's the, the sermons of one man that was actually um, recorded posthumously. Meaning after he passed away, they took his sermons and put them together. The same thing when you're talking about the Quran. When you take the Quran, it's the teachings of one man that are compiled after, after Muhammad passed away. Are you with me? And, and yet people build their lives on those things. You have the revelation of John Smith, which he wrote while he was alive and claimed it to be, you know, God's revelation, but he's the only author, the only source of it. And it's all his claims. And people base and build their lives. But when we're talking about the Bible, we're not talking about the writings of one man written in one lifetime or the writings of one man compiled very shortly after he had left this earth. When we're talking about the Bible, we're talking about 40 men. We're talking about 66 books written across three continents in three languages over the span of 14 to 1500 years. We're talking about men who wrote under different governments, in different empires, in varying cultures with varying languages. 
Yet the collusion factor alone is unparalleled in its writing that all of these men over this span of time, the the Old Testament written from about 1400 B.C. to about 400 B.C., the New Testament written from 60 A.D. to about 90 A.D., so 1400 to 1500 years that this is being written by 40 different individuals, most of which never met each other, yet there is a singular thread of redemption woven in all of their writings and their writings are without contradiction yet very harmonious in telling the same story from different perspectives and different moments in time. Like it's, it's incredible to, to think about. And then you look at the prophecy of the Bible. So the prophecy of the Bible. So we have like Isaiah and Micah, and, and they and Isaiah was a major prophet, and Micah was a minor prophet. Why major? Why minor? Because Isaiah wrote more, and Micah was 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 shorter. So obviously, I'd be a major prophet because all my messages are long. And but we do have staff that be minor prophets. It's not that they have less authority or less calling. It's just they can say it faster, or in less words. I don't have that gift. Buckle in. We're gonna be here a while. Okay. So, anyways, Micah, get some popcorn, somebody. But Micah and Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus, yet Micah tells us the town he's going to be born in. Isaiah tells us he's going to be born of a virgin. Both of them say the Messiah is going to be born, right? And, and, then, and then Zechariah writes about Jesus being crucified hundreds and hundreds of years before he was born. And, and not only that, David, most people don't know the Psalms are actually prophetic, uh, in a lot of cases, but David writes about crucifixion, and, and so does Zechariah, by the way, but they write about crucifixion. Uh, David writes uh, about crucifixion a thousand years before Jesus is crucified, and he writes about crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion is invented. And so when you start looking at the prophecies and the accuracy of it, and then you think about, here's one, the writings of Daniel. Daniel writes 500 years roughly before Christ. And Daniel writes about this one ultimate empire, this one power that's going to rule the world almost. And then it's going to be suddenly cut off and become four empires that are going to become two empires that will become one empire. And in 300 BC, 300 years before Jesus, Alexander the Great is at the pinnacle of his empire, the the most grand and powerful empire in the world. And then he is suddenly killed at 32. And his four generals take over his one empire and one becomes four. And then they merge and become the Seleucid, Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires. Four become two. And then those merge and become the Roman empire. And that becomes one. And then Jesus is born. Historians don't understand how Daniel did it. So a lot of times I think sometimes when people ask the question, how do you know the Bible is true? I would ask the question, how do you know it's not? Because really, if the Bible weren't true, it'd be easy enough. I mean, 14 to 1500 years of a span of writings, surely we could find an error. Surely we could find a place that was named that didn't really exist, a person that didn't really exist. We could find something incongruent with other ancient writings and texts. Yet it's been compared to all of those because, trust me, it has been under assault since the canonization of Scripture, really since the writing of the scrolls, the Word of God. I'll tell you when the Word of God came under assault. In Genesis chapter 3, did God really say... So do you think the assault on the word of God is a new strategy? Yet no one has been able to discredit it or disprove it. Bruce Metzger of Princeton, hardly a bastion of conservatism. Princeton. Bruce Metzger, anyways, that that didn't go well. Not going to make that joke ever again. These people like Princeton. Ruth Metzger of Princeton Theological Seminary said, after you take the 20,000 lines of the New Testament, it is safe for any scholar to say that 99.6% of the Bible has been corroborated by other historical documents. History confirms the accuracy of the Bible. When we look at historical text and we're trying to decide, can we really base, are they really true? Can we really take what they say um, 
you should understand this, that we have 66,000 copies of the Bible. So back ancient texts were all written by hand. So, so our ancient scrolls and manuscripts of the Bible, not the ones you buy in the bookstore, but the original scrolls and manuscripts, we have 66,000 copies. We have over 24,000 manuscripts of the New Testament, handwritten. Now compare that, if you will, to any other historical documents. How many believe in Julius Caesar? Do you know uh, f- four of you? Okay, so <laughs> it's a one-question test. Somebody gets to go back to school. Julius Caesar. Do you know that we only have twenty ancient documents that talk about Julius Caesar, but everyone accepts the historicity of the person of Julius Caesar and says he really existed? But we have twenty documents. We have 66,000 that say God is God. No one's debating Julius Caesar, and it would be easier. There's only 20 texts. When you look at ancient writings, the only thing that, that compares to the number of writings and copies that we have of God's Word would be Homer's Iliad. And, and, and there are 1,900 copies of Homer's Iliad. Yet, yet Think about this. 1,900 copies of Homer's Iliad. Yet because there are, because people say, well, they're hand copies, so there's going to be errors. And you're right. In Homer's Iliad, in 1900 copies, they question 643 lines as whether they are true and authentic. 643, not words, lines of text. The Bible, when they look at the Bible, there are only 400 words that can be questioned. None of them bearing any weight as to the context or the accuracy, or the message of the Bible. Um, in fact, they said the Bible has been verified to be 99.4% accurate, which is greater than any other ancient text. And the New Testament has been quoted so many times in sources outside of the Bible that you could actually, if you took all the copies of the Bible and got rid of them, you could reconstruct the New Testament all but 11 words using documents and writings outside of the biblical text. It's been quoted that much. So is it is the word of God? Is the Bible true? Well, then you got to look at the person of Jesus because all these prophecies, this thread of redemption all seem to converge in the person of Jesus. And not only that, but you have Jesus quoting the Bible. In fact, most people don't realize this, but Jesus quoted 75% of the books of the Old Testament and he quoted them authoritatively, calling them scripture. And let me just say this, by the way, a lot of people say, well, you know, maybe the original word of God was the word of God, but it's been copied. And now we just have these watered down translations like pastor. Now people are using the message Bible. What's the message? I don't know. I don't think it's the right message. I want the King James version with the these and the thous because that's how God talks. Do you understand when Jesus quoted scripture, he was quoting the Septuagint? The Septuagint was the Septuagint is where uh, uh, Emperor Ptolemy commissioned the inscription or the translation of the Hebrew text, the Torah, into Koine Greek. And so he, in order to make it accurate, he, he, um, he drafted, if you will, six scribes from six people from each of the 12 tribes. So 72 scribes. Now, two of them, we don't know why they didn't show up. So that's why it's called the Septuagint, which really just means the 70. But the interesting thing is he takes these 70 writers representing the 12 tribes of Israel and he says, y'all interpret, translate the the Hebrew text into Greek. And they all did it independently of each other. Yet when the the text were compared, they all agreed and were in alignment with each other. And when Jesus quotes scripture, much of the time in the New Testament, he is quoting the Septuagint and calling it scripture. So yes, you can use your message translation if it makes you happy. 
well, not, not a lot of takers on that. I mean, still not going to use it, preacher. Still not going to use it. Thank you, church lady. <laughs> Dr. Peter Stoner, Emeritus Professor of Science in Westmont College, did a study with 600 of his students, and they were looking at the Bible and Jesus. And what they decided to do is they wanted to, to study the Messianic prophecies and look at the probability that one person could fulfill all the Messianic prophecies. So they started with like the town of Bethlehem. What was the probability of someone, actually, just one person being born randomly in the town of Bethlehem in the days of Jesus? And they said, well, the population of the world was X. The population of Bethlehem was Y. And they kind of came to this idea that, it, that Jesus had a one in 300,000 chance of being born in Bethlehem. But then they backed up and said, wait, we didn't consider some of the variables, the fact that Mary and Joseph didn't actually live in Bethlehem and that they would be brought to Bethlehem because of a census and that Mary would be exactly nine months pregnant when they had to travel so that the child would be born in Bethlehem. So now we have some incredible variables that there's no way that we can factor in. And so th then they backed up and said, okay, so if we took, if we took these messianic prophecies and, and some people vary it, you know, they're, they're, I would say this way, there are 350 something references to the Messiah in the old Testament. And some people call those all messianic prophecies. I think there are references like there are references that, that, that the guards would gamble for the clothing of Jesus. And I don't know that you'd call that. It is prophetic. It's more of a reference, right? And so like the first messianic prophecy and promise we see is actually in Genesis where it said, and, and the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will bruise the serpent's head. And this is the first promise of redemption. The first time we see Jesus in the Bible is this picture, this messianic picture of overcoming the enemy. And so, and so they backed up and they said, okay, most people, a lot of people believe this way. This is where I land. There are 54 messianic prophecies and over 300 messianic references. All right. So they said, okay, if we took 54 messianic prophecies and what is the probability that one person could actually fulfill all 54 of these prophecies? They decided that at that point, <clears throat> um, it, it would be hard to calculate because the number would be so great. So they said, what if we took eight messianic pro prophecies corroborated completely by history and not just the Bible, such as, and God's so smart. Do you ever think of the fact that the reason Jesus was born when there was a census is now that history records his birth and not just the Bible? We can prove Jesus was born because he's on the Roman census. We can also prove that Jesus was crucified because that is also Roman history. And their historians talk about it. Historians like Josephine, they talk about these things. And so they said, okay, well, let's look at some, some just things that are corroborated outside the Bible by history. So they came to these eight messianic prophecies and they said, what is the probability that one person would be able to complete eight of these messianic prophecies? And when they did all the calculations, which they submitted to the American Scientific Affiliation, who said, quote unquote, they verified these calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to science. They said the mathematical probability that one person could fulfill not 54, just eight of the Messianic prophecies would be one in 10 to the 17th power. We don't have a number for that. It's beyond gozillion. Like I'm not really a gambler. I'm more like bird in the hand, you know, worth two in the bush. But I'm telling you, if you get those odds, you hold them. Because you, you got to know when to hold them. And, and you got to know when to fold them. And when to walk away. And when, you don't count your money sitting at the table. <laughs> and so just think about that. It's one in, in, in 10 with, with 17 zeros. That's the odds. That one person. So to give you that in, in an illustration that, that'll be a little bit easier to grasp, if you take the great nation of Texas. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Amen. The great nation of Texas just has a ring to it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. The great nation of Texas, where, where the stars at night 
are big and bright. Deep in the... And if you take the great nation of Texas and you go up to Amarillo by morning and then down to San Antonio and you go out to the West Texas town of El Paso where you fell in love with a beautiful girl and you go down to the Houston rodeo where it's bulls and blood and Bronx and mud and the roar of a Sunday crowd. Come on, Garth. It's the, it's the white in the knuckle and the gold in the buckle, you know. Boots and shafts, cowboy has, spurs and let it go. Anyways, I'm a child of the 90s and a little bit country. And you take the great, the great state of Texas, so big that if you fold us on our eastern border, we touch the Atlantic Ocean. If you fold it on the western border, it touches the, the Pacific Ocean. And if you fold it on the southern border, we go past Mexico. Fold it on the northern border, we almost get to Canada. Texas. In my opinion, the largest state, because I believe if you took a hairdryer to Alaska, it would shrink. <laughs> Texas. The great nation of Texas. If you're from Alaska, no cussing in the chat. But, but this one in 10 to the, to the 17th power, if you took the landmass, the surface area, the landmass of Texas, and you marked one silver dollar coin, and then you put it in with all the other coins and you covered the surface area of Texas with coins and then piled them two feet high. And there's one marked coin somewhere in Texas and Texas is covered two foot high in the same kind of coin. And you blindfolded someone and put them on any border and said, start walking. And whenever you feel lucky, you grab the marked coin they would have a better chance of, of getting that coin on the first try than one person would of fulfilling eight messianic prophecies. I'm telling you this, it, it's been 2,000 years since Christ, 3,500 years since the inscript, inscripturation process. No book has been more studied. No book has been more scrutinized than the text of the Bible, yet it has not failed. It always holds up to the scrutiny. Because, because... It's the word of God. Uh, this is, is funny tidbit. If you like funny tidbits, because I like kind of the. Like when God gets them. Am I the only one that's like a little bit of revenge is nice? Like I know vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But does anybody else sometimes you're like, yeah, anybody like that? I mean, I, pray for me if you think that's wrong. I probably need prayer. But but a, a French philosopher, a French philosopher named Volatar, um, who lived in the 18th century, he said, he said the Bible would be gone in a hundred years. It's now been over a hundred years since he died and the French Bible Society owns his home. <laughs> I just like that. <clears throat> yeah. Get him, God. Anyway, so, so here's my point. Here's my point. So that was all the introduction. We'll be out of here before the snow melts. Three things. Three things. <laughs> Ethel, get your purse. He's just going to talk all day. I got to. Three things that I want you to think about. The Bible is true, and if the Bible is true, number one, then its claims are true. If the Bible is true, what it claims is true. Let me give you three claims really quickly. Number one, the Bible says it is the Word of God. The Bible, you need to understand this. The Bible is not men writing about God. It is God's Word given to men. Please hear me. It is not a book where, where men who love their God wrote about God. Almost every other belief system, that's kind of how we get the book. This is 40 writers, one author. Watch this. Peter said it the way, 2 Peter 1.20, he said, knowing first of all, here's where you start. First of all, knowing first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God speaking through men. It's one author, 40 different hands. That the Bible is the word of God. Second Timothy said, all scripture given by inspiration of 
God. All scripture, that's this word by inspiration or inspiration of God is actually two Greek words put together. It's a combination word where, where it's theos, um, theos benuostos or something like that. Bless him, Lord. Don't interpret. I wasn't speaking in tongues. Okay, don't, don't, it's Greek. Okay, but anyways, but it's two words. And when you break it apart, um, it means God, theos. And then the neustos part is breath. And it's one version actually said, the version I grew up understanding said, all scripture is God breathed. God breathe. And by the way, that's not a sigh. Like, <sighs> it is very much <sighs> like it was authoritative. It was intentional. It was directional. It was direct that God, I think God is sitting there and he's like, these are my people. I want to reveal myself to them. I want to reveal them to them. And they need, they need my word. And God breathe. <sighs> And we got all scripture was breathed by God. And I love the picture of this. I love the picture of this because if you remember the way that man was created. Because the Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed. God breathed. Got out of the dust of the ground, God created man, and then God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and, God, and the man became a living being. He was mud until God breathed. And I thought about, wouldn't this be like God to say, my sons, my daughters, my, my people were created by my breath. They live from my breath. Same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me. It will quicken, quicken, strengthen my more. That they're created to live from my breath and by my breath. And this world is going to knock the breath out of them. So I'm going to give them the source of my breath. And whenever they're exhausted and when life has left them winded and they can't catch their breath, they can open up my word and I will breathe again into them and make them alive and quicken them and strengthen them and empower them. Wouldn't that just be like God to say, this is my word and it is breath to you. It's the, it's the word of God. Its claims are true. It's the word of God. And, and if it's the word of God and his claims are true, then all of its claims are true. You can say it this way. It's all true. Right. It's all true. Matthew 5, this is, this is Jesus. Because I think we live in a culture and, and people debate, well, this could be true, but maybe that's not true. And, you know, I can use the Old Testament, but I don't really trust. I mean, I can use the New Testament, but I don't trust the Old Testament. And, you know, some of these writings I'm not sure about, but some of these. And, and all of a sudden, we, we start turning into the parts of the Bible that we think are right and the parts of the Bible that we don't think are right, which usually, by the way, correspond with what we actually want to do and don't want to do. Because the number one rule of interpreting the Bible is you cannot start with you to interpret the Bible. You have to start with God. And when you start with you, you will always create a license and an error. And when people go to the Word of God to validate what they want to believe, because we live in a world of relativism. Isn't it crazy that, that we live in a world of relativism where everyone claims that they're living their own truth? Do you understand truth? and relative are not synonyms. By definition, truth has to be absolute and relativism can be what is relative, really, what is relative to you, whatever you make it. And for people to say, I'm living my truth, it is more accurate to say, I am living my delusion. I am living my lie. But you can't say I've determined truth because you are not the source of truth. You can't be your own source of truth. You are not that smart. <laughs> Nor are you eternal. And that's why we have the Bible, because the Bible is absolute. It is true. It is built on the eternal God. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 17, he said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say, until heaven and earth disappear, not one smallest letter, not one least stroke of the pen. By the way, anyone grow up with the King James where it said not one jot or tittle? I just like that. I like that picture better. Jot and tittle, baby. 
How much of the Bible you believe every jot and every tittle? I believe the concordance and I believe the maps. I believe the table of contents. Every jot and every tittle. A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew language. A tittle is the smallest mark in Hebrew writings. And what Jesus said is, is the smallest letter and the least stroke of the pen will by no means pass or, or disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, look at what Jesus says. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom. Here's what Jesus said. It's all true. It's all right. In fact, when, when you study the, the Bible, you're going to find out Deuteronomy and Proverbs actually warn against taking parts of the Bible out or putting in conjecture that's not the Bible. Revelation 22 says this, that if we add to the Bible, we open ourselves up from, for the plagues from the Bible. And that if we take away from the Bible, he will take from us the tree of life. So the Bible cautions about picking and choosing which parts, and this is something I'm so scared about today because I'm watching people decide, well, I don't think it really says this because I got on YouTube and, you know, Bible Spurt 22 said this was right. I never forget I was having a conversation with a person, and um, he said, uh, he said, can I talk to you about homosexuality in the Bible because it's a big issue? And I don't think we should shy away from the issue. And yeah, I'm about to offend somebody, but if you get offended, you're not listening to my heart. You just chose to be offended. Um, some people got offended because I said that. You understand if offense is an event. Being offended is a choice. The problem you have to understand is, just like Paul told Timothy, I charge you therefore by God to preach the gospel. It has to be preached in truth and totality and accuracy and it has to be preached in context. And this gentleman said, can I talk to you about homosexuality? And I said, sure, you can talk to me about that. And, and he said, well, you know, I, I want to talk about what the Bible says about it. I said, well, I think that would be a good place to start. And he said, yeah, but we, we can't use the book of Romans. And we can't use the book of Leviticus. And we started walking through the books we couldn't use. And I said, okay, I'll be glad to talk to you about that. And he said, well, what do, what do you say then? 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Revelation 22, anyone who takes from this book of, of life, the plagues that were in the book will come upon them, and anyone who adds to. I said, you have to understand that you've already transgressed the book by removing part of it, which is probably a greater sin than what you're trying to justify by manipulating the voice of God. And I said, by the way, how entitled and arrogant is it to shake your fist in the author of the Bible and say, I'm entitled to the blessings, but free from the moral standard. Yeah. How arrogant is it? And that's, listen, and that's with any anything in our lives. The Bible is true and all of the Bible is true and you can't take any part of the Bible out. The, the third claim, Jesus is the, the only way to God. This is another thing people argue. Well, the Bible is, they call it exclusivism. It is exclusive because you have to believe in Jesus in order to go to heaven and that's not fair and people should be able to go to heaven and not believe in Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that. If heaven is God's home, I mean, would you come to my home and not believe in me? It's going to be hard. I have pictures there. Like, I mean, you know I'm saying my clothes are there. I mean, you can't deny my existence and walk in my home. My home is going to testify to my existence. But somehow going to heaven and, and believing in God don't have to be the same thing. But look at what Jesus said. Jesus said this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. I am, listen, not a way. I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no other name, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given whereby we must be saved. 
And they say Christianity is exclusive because that I'd say, well, if you studied any, any belief system is exclusive. Right. If, if, if you want to be a Muslim, you have to completely adhere to and follow all the teachings of Allah. If you if you want to be a Hindu, then you have to accept the four Vedas and the caste system, which means that reincarnation and the life to follow and the benefits of this belief system basically are, are staggered based on your socioeconomic class. That sounds pretty exclusive. Born poor, not much hope for you. You're going to be a cockroach. I just thought of several jokes that I'm not going to say because they would be, probably they would be misconstrued as disrespectful and I'm not going to say those, but that was probably more than I should have said. Um, you want to be an atheist? You can't believe in anything. You can't have any faith if you want to be an atheist. You have to denounce all faith. Right? And so the truth is Christianity is the most inclusive, and I can prove it. Yeah. It's actually the most inclusive. Look at this, Acts 2.21, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless of position, right. regardless of skin color or race, regardless of country of origin, who Ever, regardless of your ACT and SAT scores, yeah. who you can't flunk out of Jesus. Come on, somebody. Yeah. <laughs> whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus said, whoever confesses me before men. He said, whoever does the will of my father. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, who Ever. Christianity is not exclusive. It is inclusive. It's not that Jesus is the way for some. It's that Jesus is the way for everyone. Anyone can come to him today, regardless of how, you, how good you've been, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you did 10 years ago, or what you did last night, or what you used to believe, or how you were raised, or what you've gone through, or how you've been treated. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone can call on him at any time in any place. It's the most inclusive. And not only is it the most inclusive, it's the least complicated, somebody. You don't even have to know the Bible to get saved. I mean, I recommend knowing the Bible, thus the series. But I'm saying, if you don't know Scripture today, you don't have to learn it and fulfill it and abide by it to try to find salvation. And do you realize every other belief system, that's what you have to do? They're all by works. If you adhere to the system and you do all the works and you keep it completely, then there's a chance at the end of all your working that you could be accepted by, by the deity. Christianity works exactly. Exactly in reverse. That's why I don't think it's a religion. Because what Christianity says is, this isn't based on your works. This is based on the workings of Christ. And you get acceptance and salvation immediately. And from acceptance and identity and salvation, then you live righteously. Like it starts the moment of faith that you are brought in and born again into the kingdom of light. And you start from acceptance, not working for acceptance. Grace is the foundation of Christianity and there is only one faith where the standard of righteousness has been met in and by another, Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't exclusive because it's claimed that Jesus is the only way. It's inclusive because Jesus is everyone's way. Hebrews 10 said that he, by one sacrifice, he's forgiven everyone's sin. He is everyone's way. So if the Bible is true, then its claims are true. If the Bible is true, its standard is right. Its standard is right. Oh, I wish, I wish our culture could hear this, that there is a moral standard that is right. 
Because everyone's trying to figure out, is this right or is that right? Well, I can live my truth. Just because you live it doesn't make it true. And just because you believe it doesn't make it true. There have been people who have died for lies because they believe them. And we need to understand that we are not the source nor the standard of truth. That there is absolute truth. And if the Bible is true, then when it says this is what is right, that is what is right. I have a concern, not even so much for people outside the faith. If you don't believe in God, you don't believe in the Bible, I wouldn't expect you to accept the Bible as the moral authority of life. But I'm talking about believers who no longer accept the Bible as the moral authority of life. And, and, they, and they look at the Bible and say, well, I know it says this, but it doesn't really mean that. And well, that was in that time, in that culture. But, but look, at, look at what Deuteronomy 28 said. It says, if you fully obey, not partially obey, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations and all these blessings will come upon you. Again, again, I said it once, but it was such a good point. How, how arrogant is it to feel entitled to the blessing of God while rejecting the standard of God? This is why Paul's writing Timothy and he's saying all Scripture. How much Scripture? How, let's just, you know, just simple, let's play a little game. How much is all? all? All Scripture. That's right. The book of Nahum. Some of you are like, there's a book of Nahum? Yeah, it's in there. He's one of those short-winded prophets. All right. The, the book of the Song of Solomon. The book of Leviticus. It's all in there. The book, the book of Ruth, Ezra, I mean, I mean, all these, Jude, one chapter. But it's all in there. How much is all? It's so amazing that the Bible tells us everything we need to know about the Bible, that once we, once we accept the authority of the Bible, it tells us what we need to know about it, yet we argue with it. All Scripture is breathed by God. Yeah, all of it, but I don't like this part, Pastor. It kind of offends me. I don't think it's politically correct. Listen, Bubba Ray, I mean this with all due respect, God doesn't really need your approval to validate his righteousness. He doesn't need your approval to know that he is truth. A lot of people claim to have truth. One man claimed to be it. And that man vacated a tomb after three days. Listen, when someone, you talk about God's honest truth, when someone says, they're going to put me in the ground and three days later, no one's going to find the body. I'm going to accept him as truth. I'm going to accept that standard as truth. And this is what it says. All scripture. Look at, this is a different version, but look at what 2 Timothy 3 actually says. It says this. It says, all scripture is inspired by God and useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong. It corrects us where we're wrong and it teaches us to do right. And God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. Do you understand what Paul is just telling us? All scripture, all scripture is the standard, not some, not the parts I agree with, not the parts that are congruent with the lifestyle I've chosen, but all of it, yeah. all of it. I, I don't want to, I think one of the biggest hot topic issues is the issue of sexuality. I have friends that are in same-sex lifestyles and some are believers as they say and some are not as they say. I have friends whose children have chosen what they would call an alternative lifestyle to the way they raise their children. And I know you can get you can get you can get on YouTube and they can take the six they call it the big six the six places in Scripture where homosexuality is referenced, and they have all these. In my opinion, they're all in error, but they make their case that the word homosexuality actually was actually the word pedophile, and so obviously pedophilia is wrong, but homosexuality is not. I was asked about this. And I said, I hear you. And I know it's hard. First of all, I can sympathize with someone because I think the church has gotten this really wrong, which is part of the problem because we've looked at people that have honest attraction and said, just stop it. Well, if stop it worked, I wouldn't have a job and Jesus wouldn't have died on a cross. We had a law that said, stop it. That didn't work for anybody. 
it doesn't work for your Oreo addiction. <laughs> right? Like how many wish you could just stop eating chocolate chip cookies? I do. I mean, kind of. <laughs> Never mind. And so I, 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 don't, I think the church has been too harsh and we haven't been understanding, we haven't listened, we haven't loved well. But again, today I'm not talking about the methodology of the church, I'm talking about the Word of God. And when I was asked about this and they said, well, if you take out these six references, I said, but what about Romans chapter 1? Because in Romans chapter 1, Paul clearly makes the case that men had forsaken the natural way of having sex and chose to have sex with other men. And that women had forsaken the natural way of having sex, and they were having sex with other women. And God pronounced a judgment on that. So if it's not, if God didn't think it was right, he, God doesn't usually judge what's not wrong. In fact, he would be unjust if he judged what is right. Which is why he cannot condemn you for sin because your sin was condemned at the cross. So he would be unjust to judge you as evil, having been washed in the blood of Jesus. So God, so, but he pronounces a judgment. And the judgment is he turned them over to what was wrong. And I said, so what, what do you do with that? And they kind of looked at me and I said, what about Genesis where it said, for this reason, a father, I mean, this is the God, the God who made you said, here's what marriage is, one man and one woman. And I know there are people probably turning me off right now and you're like, ah, this guy, he's another one of those haters. I would submit that just because you don't agree with me doesn't make me a hater. That maybe the hate is being angry at me right now for expressing my opinion and demanding tolerance when you offer none. And what I would say is I'm okay if you hate me for what I just said because I didn't say it. All I did was repeat it. And you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with God. And so, so if it's true, then, then the standard, if God, if the Bible calls it wrong, it's wrong. It's not up for debate, right? Like with your kids, some of you, if you raise kids, if you're a kid, you haven't gotten here yet. If you're a teenager or a kid somewhere in there, you may still be in a phase where you, you know everything. But one day you'll have kids and you'll realize how dumb you are. And they'll ask questions and you're like, I don't know. There's no handbook for this. But I'm just saying when you have kids and you say, kids, this is right. You don't want them saying, you know, dad, actually, I don't think that's right. I think this is going to be right because I kind of like this better than what you came up with. And how foolish is it to tell God, you know, God, you wrote this whole book and created everything, created me and gave life, and you've done so many wonderful things. But you know what? I just, I'm not going to take you at your word here because I just don't like it. I think I know better because I've been alive 40 years. You know, you've been around infinity. <laughs> just, you got time for one more? I know I'm way long, but you got time for one more? If the Bible is true, then its power is undeniable. It's powers. When Hebrews 4, 12 says, for the word of God is living and powerful. This, listen, listen. These aren't the words of man. These are the words of God. And Hebrews, the old one of the verses says, they're living and active. The word of God is doing something according to Isaiah. The word of God cannot re return void, but it accomplishes the thing for which it was sent. That when God speaks, something changes. And when God gives us the word of God and says it's powerful, it's powerful. And the writer of Hebrews says, how powerful is it? Well, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. It is so powerful and so precise, it will divide out what is flesh and what is spirit. Because sometimes you got stuff going on and you're like, I don't know, is this God or is this me? That's why you have the Word of God. So you'll know what is God and you'll know what is you. Listen, you don't actually read the Bible, the Bible reads you. Yeah. Hebrews 1 3, it says, who being, the, it's talking about Jesus, but who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person 
And it says, upholding all things by the word of his power. It's talking about Jesus. The word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Jesus upholding all things by the word of his power. Do you understand, first of all, what this text says? That God is speaking, and if he ever stops speaking, everything falls apart. Right? Like, he upholds all things. And then I like the phrase, word of his power. It's not just the power of his word. It's the word of his power, meaning his words express and release his power. That when I read the Bible, that's why it's the breath of God. When I read the Bible, those aren't just black ink and red ink on white parchment paper or whatever. These these words are alive. And when I read them, they're coming alive in me. They're, They're active in my life. They're being activated in me. God is breathing in me. When when I read his word and when it says Psalm 107, 20 says, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them. I have healing and deliverance encased in leather in my home. Just one click away on the Bible app on my phone. He sent his word. I thought about this because I want you to understand building your life on the Bible. I don't know why we do that. It's like we're about to fight. Let me tell you something, you know. Anyways, I don't know. But anyways, building your life on the Bible. And I thought, if the writer of Hebrews authoritatively declares that he holds all things together by the word of his power, then I guess by the word of his power, means he could hold your life together. And maybe if your life is coming unraveled, maybe it needs an application of the word of his power. Like one of the reasons that I read the Bible, yes, is I'm a preacher and we're supposed to, and I want my gold star when Sunday comes. But I hold, I read the Bible because it holds my life together. When I accept its authority and its accuracy, when I accept its righteous standard and its words, when I accept the Bible and I implement it and I take it into my life, it's powerful and it holds my life together. And when I'm sick, when I'm depressed, when I'm alone, when I'm anxious, there is a word of his power that will heal and deliver and set free. You will know the truth and the truth will make you free. When Jesus was faced one-on-one in a battle with the devil, (laughs) he quoted one source. It is written. It is written. It is written. Do you understand Jesus didn't fight the devil? He let the word fight the devil for him. And do you understand if it can hold the world together, it can hold your life together. And that's why Jesus in, in his word, Matthew seven, he said, anyone who takes these sayings of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the winds came and the floods came, but it stood without fail. Why? Because it was built on the word. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Isaiah said, the grass will wither and the flowers will fail. They will fall, but the word of God will stand forever. And I'm telling you today, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. If you're going to build your life on anything, don't let it be conjecture. Don't let it be social media posts. Don't let it be some book that you read or some class you took in college on philosophy or even theology. You build your word, your life on the word of God because a life built on the word of God cannot fail because the foundation cannot fail. And when everything else is sinking sand, on Christ the solid rock, 
you'll stand. It's God's honest truth. And it's truth you can stake your life on. Amen. Can you give Jesus praise? Why don't you stand with me? Father, thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for your truth today. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that's in this place with us. And God, today, for, for those online, for us in this room, God, we, we want to hear your voice. And so, God, this is that time. If you're watching online, don't, don't turn off the stream just yet, but do this with us. I want everyone just to take a moment and say, God, what are you saying to me? And Holy Spirit, I pray you'd speak. I pray you would. I pray you would. To every heart in this room, in another room, speak. And as we're listening for the Holy Spirit, for God to speak to us, um, whether you're in this room or you're watching online, Maybe, maybe you've never accepted that Jesus is the way, that he's the only way. And, and maybe that's what you feel like you need to do today. I would love for you to do that today. I want to pray with you. And so if you're in this room, you're watching online, and, and you're saying, you know, Pastor, I need, I need to come to faith in Jesus. I need to accept him as the only way, the only truth, the only life, the only way to the Father. And right now you feel that maybe in your soul, in your heart, I want to pray for you. So every head bowed, I'm going to ask you to do something. It's not for me. It's really for you. But, but I'm going to ask you, if that's, if that's the decision you want to make today to trust God, to come to him through his son, Jesus, I want you just to lift your hand. Even if you're in another room, you're not in this room, I just want you to lift your hand up and say, God, here I am. I surrender. This is me. This is what I want. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I believe Jesus is the way. And right now, if, if that's you, then there's just a, a declaration really of faith that you make to say, God, I believe in you and I believe in your son, Jesus. Come on, you can put this in your own words. I believe he died and he rose again for me and I ask you to forgive me. And as your word says, make me a new creation and then help me to follow you the rest of my life. And God, I pray as they pray that prayer, wherever they're at, God, you would transform them. If you prayed that prayer, we want to pray with you. If you pray that prayer online, we would love to connect with you. And so you can go back to that connection card, My Pathway Connect 77977, or you can put, put in there My Pathway Prayer 77977. We would like to pray with you. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come. We end all of our worship experiences with a time of prayer. Um, and if you, accept, you know, if you made the decision to follow Christ today, we want to pray with you or we want to pray with you online. But uh, if you need prayer for anything, we're just here to encourage, to pray, to stand with you. And so, Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for this amazing group of believers. And God, we want to build our lives on something that won't fail. We want to build our lives on the word of God. God, we pray you would go with us, go before us, help us. God, as we trust in you, God, give us a good week. Help us to be light and darkness. God, help us to be salt God, to, to make people thirsty for you and hungry for you, to season life a little bit. God, help us to take over the world for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, God bless you. I love you. Yeah, you can give Jesus if you want to. Go ahead. Um, God bless you. I love you. Can't wait to see you next weekend. Have an incredible week. I think it's going to be like 90 degrees this week or something. So y'all enjoy that.